Let's do this. The Cult of Hockey podcast by the faithful and for the faithful. I'm David Staples of the Edmonton Journal, and I'm here today with Bruce McCurdy. Is it Happy New Year time, Bruce? I guess it's Happy New Year time. Probably, yeah, it'll probably be after New Year's that we do our next podcast, so it's Happy New Year time. Happy well, New Year, David. Happy New Year, Bruce. Let's, uh, let's hope it is a happier New Year. Uh, I, have, so, I have an old saying every New Year. I say, may it be better than the last. And uh, this year, that's a mighty low bar to clear. <laughs> uh, but in the non-zero chance that we don't clear it, trouble. <laughs> well, uh, I can't confirm this, but my wife just told me she was reading a news report that AstraZeneca, which is one of the pharmacy companies um, producing vaccine, says by, I think it was by April, if I'm not, April or June, they're going to have 700 million doses. Mm -hmm. So my hope has been that there's going to be this huge glut of vaccine so right. that the, anyone who wants to get vaccinated can get vaccinated in the first half of the year, which mm -hmm. would be fantastic. Uh, Bruce, we've got the World Junior Tournament going on in the safe bubble, the safe haven bubble of Edmonton and the downtown Marriott Hotel. So, And there's a couple Oiler prospects who have played. Dylan Holloway and Philip Broberry. So we will talk about those two players. We will talk about uh, the signing of a depth defenseman, Slater Kukuk, for the Edmonton Oilers. Uh, there's a little bit of, just a little bit of controversy around them because there's the old stats, a little bit of the old stats debate coming up. So we'll dig into that a bit around uh, Kukuk. And we will finally talk about um, the Athletics' Dom Lecician, who is a very astute hockey writer, I find. And uh, when it comes to use of advanced stats, one of the people that I, I find does a really swell job with it um, and is always interesting. So he came out with his analysis of the Edmonton Oilers for the coming season, and we'll talk about that as well. Let's start out, Bruce, talking. Uh, is, the, is that the cat? I hear the bells. The cat. Is, is it Santa? I locked, her, I locked her in a different <laughs> part of the house, but apparently that door has been opened and the ship is sailing. Sorry. Um, the, uh, Broberry, let's start. Mm. So Holloway, let's start with Holloway because sure. there's a little bit of, um, he, he, he played the first game and, mm. um, you wrote a report about that. I, for my, I'll just give my quick take. I thought he was fine. Like I thought mm -hmm. he was fast. Now he's fast. So, so he's not as skilled as some of the forwards on the ice. Clearly. He's not as skilled as some of the, the, the highest-end skill guys. Mm -hmm. He's as fast as anyone, if not faster than anyone on the ice, Bruce. In a fast game, he looked fast. So, I mean, the only guy that I thought looked as fast as him was Byram, uh, who's also super fast. But um, Holloway charging in there like he did, you know, just charging all over the ice and just showing that speed, that was very, very, very encouraging, very sweet to see. Uh, what did you think of the player? Yeah, uh, well, he of course, he only played one of the first two games, and then he missed uh, last night. He was a late scratch uh, with a upper body injury, which may or may not be a head or as opposed to, say, a shoulder injury. Um, but he was involved in a tremendous amount of contact in the first game, probably more than almost any other Canadian player, and he was on the receiving end of a fair bit of it. Um because he he likes to go where angels fear to tread, and he goes there fast, and he you know, and uh, he's not uh, uh, he's not he doesn't shy away from going after a puck that's maybe 40, 60. 
Anyway, uh, he, his speed impressed me, but what impresses me in concert with his speed is the fact that his feet are always moving. He doesn't stand around. He doesn't glide. He's always on the move. And he's on, uh, his skating is um, uh, a, a real superior strength in that he's got what the scouts call the four-way skating, right? He can, he can um, uh, transition easily from forward to backward. So when his team has the puck and he's getting open for a pass, he naturally will turn. Even though he'll backpedal away to open up a passing lane or whatever, he's always facing the puck. And giving you know making himself available uh, for the pass, and he you know he plays straight ahead hockey. You know he'll he'll dump it in and go in and uh, you know and bring the physicality along the end wall. Uh, but he's he has the capacity of you know making making uh, making good plays with the puck. Like I'm not sure there's a high high level of creativity uh, in the player, but uh, uh, you know he can. He can uh, make and take a pass, as Low Tide says, and he can, uh, uh, you know, he, he made some good plays circling the net with the puck and uh, holding it and wait, waiting for the lane to open up and then putting it in there. And uh, he was uh, on a very strong line playing left wing on a line with Dylan Cousins and Alex Newhook, both of whom had very big games for Canada. They also scored some points on the power play. Uh, and Holloway's special team duty was on the penalty kill, uh, where he was on a, a duo, the first penalty kill duo with Jacob Pelche. And as I suspected, uh, on the on the penalty kill, they used him as the face-off man. So even though he's playing left wing at even strength, on the penalty kill, he was taking face-offs and winning them. Mind you, winning them against an overmatched, understaffed, uh, seriously compromised German team that really had no chance in this game. This was a, this was a, uh, one of the biggest mismatches that I can remember in recent years in terms of, uh, of the one team having literally no hope of winning the game. Uh, the German team reduced to 16 players compared to 22 for Canada. And the Germans having played and played their hearts out the day before in their first game against Finland, and they had not much left in the tank, and Canada just took it to them. So it's very hard to draw a real solid judgment out of, off this game, other than you can see things like, you know, Holloway's energy level, his skating, and his commitment to, you know, moving his feet all the time. doesn't matter who you're playing. That's something you want to see, and we saw it. So He led the team in ice time, I understand. He led the forwards in ice time, 15 minutes and 55 seconds. They really spread it around. Of course, they had 13 forwards, so they were able to... uh, It wasn't just the normal uh, 15 minutes each kind of split that you'd expect with uh, rolling four lines. Uh, So he was marginally ahead, but it wasn't like he got hurt in that game and they, they, they curtailed his ice time. In fact, the play that he may have got hurt on, as TSN identified, was the play where Schneider, Braden Schneider, took a five-minute major game misconduct and one-game suspension for a headshot on a German. I, I really was cheesed by that, I have to say, because I thought of all the games, like I know Canada comes out and they're pumped in the first game and they're going to be running around, boys will be boys kind of thing, but that was a game where sportsmanship had to be number one on the list. I mean, they were playing a team that was 
Well, I'd say decimated, but decimated means you've only lost one-tenth of your troops. Germany had lost like a third of their players, nine players removed from their roster for health reasons. You know, and they're barely going with minimum staff. You know you can win the game handily by playing keep away. You don't need to run them. Anyway, Braden Schneider decided to run a guy, and the collateral damage was when he hit the guy in the head, the guy's helmet hit Dylan Holloway, collateral damage also in the helmet, head-to-head clash. Uh, and it may be that Schneider wound up hurting his own teammate in this collision. It was one of several yeah. collisions involving Holloway. So they were guessing, but it was head-to-head. You could see it on the film. And I've, I've got the tweet embedded in the post where you can look at it yourself if you like. Yeah, I've been looking... Uh, excuse me. Uh, I've been on the lookout for reports that he's practicing with the team because I hope to see that. Mm-hmm. Um, and, uh, yeah, I was a little bit worried, like, that he was just benched, you know, and this was a bit of an excuse. But if, if he indeed played the most ice time of any forward, um, that conspiracy theory can go out the window because that's a, a clear signal that the coach trusts this player and he's a absolutely vital cog in the team. Bruce, he struck me he, as a glue player, mm-hmm. you know, like, 100%. like, um, he's, he will fit in, uh, very well. He'll, he'll put pressure on the puck and the puck carrier. And when you're a coach in hockey, like you just, that's what you're hoping for with, with yeah. so many forwards that they just get on that guy, put pressure on that player. Mm-hmm. Cause when you put pressure on the player, good things happen, mistakes are made. And that's, so that's Holloway. And you could just, I could see him with McDavid, honestly, um, keeping up to McDavid and charging in there with McDavid and putting pressure on the defenseman and, you know, McDavid coming in and feasting on the, the stray pucks that result from that. So, um, that's a bit of projecting on my part, but that's what you have to do with your first first round draft pick. That's what you're hoping to see. And like I know that as an Oilers observer, I'm hoping I'm looking for good things, right? So I'm the bad penalty that he took or the turnover that he made. I'm trying to I'm thinking, oh, that's just could happen to anybody. And I'm looking for the good stuff, and I'm hoping beyond hope that this player is going to turn out because so much is invested in these first picks. You need them to turn out. But I, I do think even a sober observer of his game would hopefully say some of this, notice some of the things that we're noticing and right. um, be positive about this player. What would you give him on a, on a scale of, out of 10 for that game? Oh, I, grade, I graded him a seven out of 10. And I mean, for a guy who got one secondary assist in a 16 to two win, well, you had a whole team full of eights or nines maybe, but no, I don't think that was, you know, his role is, you know, like when he was penalty killing, which he did a lot. And, you know, that five-minute major in the play that he may have got dinged up, by the time they got through the task of of assigning the major, sending the guy off to the penalty box and so on, he was actually out to take and win the face-off uh, to begin that five-minute uh, shorthanded situation. And he and Pelche took three shifts during the, those five minutes and uh, and got the job done. So a lot of his role was, was defensive in nature. Uh, I did like his, in addition to the pressure on the other team, his puck support, his positioning, I already mentioned him, often facing the puck, but also just being in good position, being the next wave that if the, when the Germans beat the four-checker, they would then <coughs> run right into Dan Holloway as the second wave because he was, you know, well-placed and seems well aware of defensive things. You know, a couple of, a couple of small bobbles, but uh, uh, really no... Uh, uh, no obvious deficiencies in his game. I thought I thought he had a strong game. So, Philip, 
Burlberry has played one game as well. He had three assists. Uh, mm-hmm. Two of them were kind of secondary assists, very, very right. secondary-ish. But one mm-hmm. of them, he moved into the slot very nicely and got off a dangerous shot, that which the rebound uh, off the boards was put into the net. Mm-hmm. Uh, so there was a lot of superlatives I'd noticed online mm-hmm. about Philip Broberry's game. To me, uh, we've been watching him for, for some time now. So a few things stood out um, to me watching that game and the Canadian game. Um, we've been watching a lot of European hockey, Bruce. Yes. And the, it, it just hit me over the head. It is such a different game. Mm-hmm. It is it is played differently. The tactics are different. The pace is different. The speed is way different. Even it, it even though these are just major junior players, as opposed, you'd think that the men of the Swedish elite league are faster players than the the world junior players. Uh, I I would think, but it looked so much faster on the small ice surface. Everything is compressed and sped up, and and Broberry's game really suits. Uh, it's he's fine on the big ice. It seems to suit the small ice though, just fine. Mm-hmm. He just, uh, you know, he was playing a lower level of competition, I think, than he plays in the in the against the Swedish oh, men. Sure. But um, he he looked he had one of his better games. He had a typical Philip Broberry game when he's on his game. He's dominating the puck. He's making plays. He's he's shooting here, there, and everywhere. And uh, he looked good. And Bruce, one final thought that I have on. Broberry and Klafbaum. When the Oilers drafted Broberry, there was a lot of criticism that they didn't take a forward because there was mm-hmm. a feeling that the Oilers lacked depth at forward. But I wonder if Oilers management, this is one of the things you always have to keep in mind when you're trying to rate. They have information that we don't have. And I wonder how, I think they've known for some time that Oscar Klafbaum's shoulder is an iffy proposition in the long, short term and long term. And I wonder if that didn't, if that wasn't one of the factors of them thinking, man, in a year or two, uh, we we are likely going to need someone who can step up in case Oscar can't go, and they the, that pick was made with that knowledge firmly in in mind. So, well, <laughs> that's yeah, that's a good question. It was 2019. It was 18 months ago. Yeah, but <laughs> Cliff bombs. Issues with his shoulder go back longer than that, and Much it seems longer. to be the same, uh, the same one that's uh, that's cropping up. So, uh, Broberry, to me, in his first game, uh, I mean, the three points, uh, you know, he it was one to one after the first period, and then he set up all three goals Sweden scored in the second period, and they cruised from there. He didn't play much in the third, but in the second, he was all over the ice. Uh, the assists were almost. Uh, uh, incidental, but his overall play I thought was pretty outstanding. Uh, with a couple of uh, a couple of bobbles again. I mean, these are 19-year-old kids we're talking about. They make mistakes, but he didn't make many, and he made up for the ones that he did make. And he, you know, he won so many races to the puck. He 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 made so many good poke checks. He took guys out of the play, uh, and just generally was a dominant force out there, you know, with his size, his reach, especially his speed. Uh, he's a, you know, he's a hard man to beat uh, in a one-on-one. And uh, the checks weren't doing it uh, on his watch, really. And uh, I just thought overall he played a, a, a very strong game. He won the Player of the Game Award and earned it. And he had the announcers, especially Craig Button, just raving about him throughout the game. And watching his shifts again last night, I noticed that 
beginning of the second and third period started with a close-up of Philip Broberg and the commentators just just uh, uh, singing his praises as to how good he looked out there. So for what that's worth, I mean, Craig Button is an effusive guy, as we all know. And uh, I, I really like Craig I, I'm a fan of Craig Button entertainment, Just for entertainment value. He's, mm-hmm. he's an interesting commentator, right? He's not boring. He's so not that's, boring. that's something to be, that's the, he passes the first test. It's like Burke, you know, not boring. These people who have, passion. these people who have been GMs often uh, are pretty articulate mm-hmm. and also have a lot of experience. Button's an interesting character in terms of Broberry because he rated him I think uh, one of the highest ratings in that draft year was from Button for Broberry. Right. He was seventh, I think, had him seventh mm-hmm. on Button's list. But then la- a year later, when he did his mid-season rankings, was missing, Broberry was missing from the top 50 prospects outside of the NHL. Like he had suddenly mm-hmm. uh, had some major questions on him, and which fair enough. Like I don't, I'm not gonna. Maybe it was based on a, a World Junior tournament last year where he was slotted in. It's kind of a bottom pairing depth defenseman, don't make a mistake role, you know. Now he's being asked to lead the team and to be a prime mover in the game and is getting power play time, penalty kill time, and even strength time. And, um, yeah, I'm not surprised by his strong play, Bruce. This is exactly what I would have expected from him. I mean, we've seen him do spectacular things in many games, many times in many games against adult players, uh, in Sweden this year, he he has that ability to play the Serge Savardian style of dominant game, even against men in Sweden this year. We've seen it coupled with really weak games and um, where he's seems to lack confidence and doesn't do well. So this is why uh, I'm glad to hear that he's going back to Sweden after this mm-hmm. World Junior Tournament is over. He's just headed right there. So I think that's the right call. And could change, but I don't expect that it will. Yeah, well, he's had, uh, uh, this is his third World Junior. Uh, we saw him originally here in Edmonton at the uh, 2018 Linka Gretzky Cup, uh, where Sweden won the silver medal, and, and uh, Broberry had a very strong tournament. And that following spring, uh, he was a gold medalist and tournament all-star in the U18 tournament that followed that uh 2018-19 season just before Oilers drafted him but he's also played now in the, this is third world junior he's a captain of team Sweden as you said playing in all situations he got one assist in each of uh, power play shorthanded and even strength in the uh, in the game on uh, uh, Boxing Day and you know they they're they're clearly heavily relying on him and they got they have three first round draft picks on their defense. Uh, with his uh, his regular partner, and he was playing right defense mostly at even strength. Uh, uh, Brobery with uh, Thomas Bjornfot, a, uh, for a later first round pick with L.A. Kings, and uh, they also have Victor Soderstrom, who's their first power play defenseman, more of an offensive guy than than Brobery is. So they have got a nice, as usual, Sweden defense, you know. Their defense looks good, doesn't it? Like those, those guys can all sling that puck around, all very mm-hmm. confident. Soderstrom's a very confident player with the yes. puck. Yeah, and, he uh, great passes. Yeah, he's he's a different kind of player mm-hmm. than uh, Broberry. But, and, and we'll see who, 
whose game translates best to the NHL. Mm-hmm. I have a pretty good feeling that Broberry's game is going to be just fine in the NHL. Probably sometime next season, Bruce. I don't see him being in the minors long at all, honestly. I could see him making the Oilers out of training camp next year and uh, being on the third pairing. Um, if, if that's where he is, I mean, behind, let's say, Jones and Nurse, um, you know, that you know, that's a pretty strong left side of the defense all of a sudden. And that's not counting on Oscar Klopp-Bomb, uh, and, I, and, and who knows what's going to happen there. Um, Bruce, the Oilers um, made a trade, or excuse me, a signing, Slater mm-hmm. Kukuk, 26-year-old mm-hmm. defenseman who played for Chicago and uh, impressed some people. Uh, um, you know, I can't, honestly, when I watch the Oilers versus another team, I'm so focused on the Oilers that I don't really have a strong assessment of um cuckoo from those games and and my and my general tendency now is if i haven't seen a player a lot right in terms of a trader assigning i i try to force myself to assign <clears throat> to not make up my mind to have no opinion on the player coming mm-hmm. in you know obviously uh, you can see if they sign a a first line center or, or a you know, you can see like Dominic Cahoon's points stand out. You know, you can see Kyle right. Torres's career, like a general census, but not anything that I'm wedded to. I don't try to, you know, here's my line and like here's I'm standing on this mountain and saying Slater Cuckoo is this as a player, and because I just don't I don't know what he is as a player, right? And I'm not prepared based on the existing stats to say he's anything. The the numbers the stat that I will go with more than anything else is time on ice. How much have his coaches trusted him as a player? Various coaches over time in the NHL, how much have they trusted him in overtime, on the penalty kill, at even strength, and on the power play? That's gen. That's I'm going to put the most weight in that kind of analysis. And by that analysis, I believe Kukuk has always been kind of seen by his coaches as a third-pairing defenseman, seventh, seventh D, sixth D. There was some talk from Mike Kelly, who's a stats analyst out of Chicago before the Oilers series, that Kukuk and his partner, Oli Mata, had been responsible for a huge number of grade-A scoring chances against um, with the Blackhawks and were part of a very porous defense in Chicago. On the other hand, there's um, on-ice stats analysis of Kukuk, which suggests that, that he's... A, a pretty good hockey player. Um, you know, if you go by goals for percentage or, uh, you know, Fenwick for percentage, right. uh, there, there's, if you go by, I did a ranking, Bruce, of all NHL defensemen last year based on goals for percentage, Fenwick for percentage, and um, X goals for percentage, which is, expected goals for percentage based on the kind of shots that they're out for there on the ice and cuckoo raked i think 62nd in the entire nhl if you go for these on ice stats so there's people who who put a lot of weight in those stats are very excited about the signing and think the owners have gotten a diamond in the rough here diamond in the rough so um hey maybe they're maybe they maybe that's correct i i'm not going to say it but i'm not going to invest myself in that opinion or or even mike kelly's assessment that Cuckoo's going to be a bit of a disaster on defense. I just, I'm going to wait and see the player. Yeah, I, I, I wasn't, I mean, I read your quotes of Mike Kelly stuff in, in your post and it, it, uh, it, 
it seemed a little bit harsh. I mean, Chicago as a team, sure, they got blown up, but Cuckoo's uh, stats relative to his team were actually really good. Uh, he had way better um, uh, uh, shot and, and uh, dangerous Fenwick uh, numbers against all three levels of competition. He did play over 30% of his minutes against elite competition, so it's not like he was heavily, heavily sheltered. I mean, the Ice Time says he was the third pairing guy, and that's, I mean, that's basically what the Oilers signed him to be. But, you know, he's a 26-year-old D-man with 150 NHL games under his belt. Uh, last year, he was a healthy scratch for early, for much of the uh, early part of the season. And I went through his news reports on Rotowire, and somewhere around um, uh, January, they the coach was quoted as saying, he's just playing too well, I can't keep him out of the lineup anymore. And he basically played the whole rest of the way including all nine of their playoff games. And, you know, we got a belly full of the guy, frankly, in the Chicago-Edmonton series. Uh, he played really well in that series, I thought. And he was, a, you know, a, a, a thorn in Edmonton's side. He scored points and, you know, got a goal and uh, two or three assists in that series. And he was uh, in a year and a half in Chicago since being traded there from Tampa Bay. Uh, he was traded for Jan Ruta, who's a, who's a pretty good defenseman who Tampa Bay just re-signed. And two years in Chicago, he was a plus player both years and, you know, an earned plus player in that. He did, he did that at five on five. And uh, Chicago was not a good team. You know, any kind of a plus uh, is... Uh, um, unexpected on a team like that two years in a row he was an outscorer and again in the playoffs you know plus four in, in the uh, nine game playoffs down all of that against the Oilers um, but you know by shot metrics by goal metrics um, pretty good and you know he's a former just let me see when they seem to recall he was a high draft pick yeah 10th overall 10th overall in 2012 that's yakupov the yakupov draft yeah that's the year they had was eight defensemen in the top 10 ryan murray and griffin reinhardt morgan riley and all those guys so Um, the Oilers would have been better later cuckoo that year than neil yakupov well it took him a long time to make it he was (laughs) one of these late late blooming defensemen to say the least and in fact, his career high in games played is only 42 games that he played last year. So he's played a lot of half seasons until now, and he's gradually been working his way up. But I mean, if he's if the Oilers assigned him to be a seventh defenseman, he's a well-proven one. If they drafted or picked him to be a sixth defenseman, he's a proving, uh, improving one. Uh, you know, as a six-seven, you know, I don't know how much better they could do than that, and they got him at a pretty cheap price, eight hundred fifty thousand uh, dollars. I like the signing, and so I mean, I have to say that uh, I mean, way back in October when the uh, when the uh, teams were qualifying players or not qualifying them just before free agency opened. And there was a lot of kind of surprising guys that didn't get qualified. And I remember going through that list and and writing a post before unrestricted free agency opened. And I picked out two guys that I thought that had been un, un that 
hadn't been qualified that surprised me that I thought could help the Oilers, and I named Dominic Cahoon and Slater Kukuk, so I'm kind of chuffed about that. You know, that worked out rather well. They both wound up signing with the Oilers. I'm surprised they gave him a contract as opposed to a PTO, but maybe it speaks to some... Uh, um, it's maybe it speaks to some competition to get the player here. Maybe they felt another team was going to offer him a contract. The only, the only, so I think two, two things at the same time. I think depth, you cannot have enough NHL depth at defense because players do tend to get injured and that's, that holds for this year. So you bring in another depth defenseman. He's not on a big contract. He's not on a, he's not, it's not like, Let's say, let's say, like my fear is that he's another Mark Fain, like someone with good on ice numbers when you sign him and he turns out to be a guy who can't really play in the NHL at all. But this doesn't matter because he's just he's just a deaf defenseman. So so if he if he does turn into that, it, like they don't have to play him. Uh, and it's great to have that depth. My only other thought was I like William Logason as mm-hmm. a player and I like Theodore Lenstrom as a player. We've been watching them in Sweden. I, I, Lenstrom, I think, is a very good uh, bet to be able to play in the NHL um, in the next couple help out. And Logason's been working his way up the organization for a long time, seven years as a prospector. Since yep. 2014, right, he was drafted six years, six, seven years as a prospect. And I just felt a little bit bad mm-hmm. for, for Wild Bill, um, who's put in all this time. He's finally ready uh, to be that, that depth D-man. And they bring in Slater Cuckoo. But on the other hand, this is the NHL. This is this is the way it goes. It's not an easy league to make, and um, such is life. And for for the organization, from the organizational perspective, this is a this is a you you can you need to bring in a depth D man. You know, Chris Russell took a step back last year, Bruce. He didn't play as well, I thought, last year as he had played in the two or three previous seasons for the Oilers. He's now thirty four. Um, you've got to cover yourself. You've yeah. got to be. You've got to be ready in case Chris Russell mm-hmm. can't go, and um, or is out. And so the Oilers, they did that. So I'm I'm good with the signing in that way. Well, they've only got four D men <clears throat> with a hundred NHL games under their belt. Well, now they got five. You know what I mean? Just yeah. Have a have a little bit more NHL experience in there, and 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 still young experience. This is still an improving player, and you know this this is a sign that could work out well. Uh, but at minimum, I mean, Mark Fain, who I have a higher opinion of than you do, uh, but he was. I mean, that contract was a disaster. Four years at three point five million, and they wound up eating the last two years of it while he played in the minors. Well, one year at $850,000, I mean, you can waive that and you, you don't have any, you don't have to bury anything like you, you, can, or you can bury the whole thing. You don't have to carry any, any salary. So the, the risk level is very, very low. And it's, There's, just, it's just depth. More it's an example of Kate's being willing to spend his money, isn't it? Because mm-hmm. if, if he's got a one-way contract, <clears throat> they're paying him this money. So whether he's playing or not, um, Daryl Cates has just shown again that he's willing to step up and pay for the Edmonton Oilers. I think that's the biggest, that's, this is, you know, more, and I take that as good news. We don't know the financial situation of various owners heading out of the lockout. One assumes, like, the stock market's gone crazy, so one assumes that, you know, many rich people are just doing just fine. So I'm a little less worried. I just have a little bit of, 
like in terms of the the Edmonton Oilers owner, I don't like I, having money. I just have a little bit of PTSD, Bruce. I don't know why. It might have to do with a certain August day back in 1988 that I have that this 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 thing that won't go away, this sense of doom and gloom uh, and and anxiety about how much money an Edmonton Oilers owner has. But um, this this again, one more indication that Cates is going to continue to do what he's done since he took over the team. And that is spend, spend, spend as much as he can around the edges to improve this team. So uh, that's one good signal from this signing. Right. And I mean, the guys they're signing now are, are dirt cheap as uh, NHL contracts go. I mean, this morning we had Corey Perry sign in Montreal. Corey Perry, $750,000 one-year contract. I mean, the, the, the values have gone down to even below the one million, one year, one million, that sort of became the, the standard show me contract in recent years has now become one year, 800,000 or NHL minimum, even that. Uh, but to me, the uh, contracts that Ken Holland has signed since the pandemic um, have been uh, uh, fairly, fairly frugal. And he's gotten players at either a heavy discount from what they got before or at a very minimal raise when it's clear that, you know, a raise was coming. Like Tyler Ennis, after a very strong season, he got a raise from 800000 to $1 million. Well, that's not going to break the bank, you know, and there was no sort of real over-the-top. Uh, I mean, as you've mentioned many times, they tried to get Jacob Markstrom, but they didn't. So you can't, you know, you, you can... Uh, you can say they fouled it off as opposed to struck out uh, on that one. But um, the contracts that they have signed, you know, have been uh, 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 very reasonable. And, I mean, they haven't got much cap space, and he's used what he what he has to the best. But at a certain point, I mean, this isn't $800,000, $850,000 new money on the cap because at such time as Slater Cuckoo makes a team, somebody else doesn't. So it just replaces another salary on the roster so it's extra money out of daryl cates's pocket though as you point out indeed indeed so the montreal canadians have signed Corey perry i like the that was an interesting move bruce that uh, mm-hmm. tampa made you know but essentially i i see the move is when you're moving out salary like that and, and bringing in injured players who aren't going to play what you're doing is just what you're doing is moving out Braden coburn and uh cedric paquette and using the money that you would have paid for them and using it to sign, you know, they've signed Mikhail Sergachev. They got to sign up. Sorelli signed. I think they. Yep. Three years, 4.8 million so for Sorelli. Anthony Sorelli. So they've signed these players. They had to find cap space for them and they've moved out uh, uh, live salary cap for dead salary cap. It won't count against the cap that players they brought in. So good move by Tampa Bay. They, they, they lost. Uh, Go they ahead. lost Kucherov for the season with a regular, for sure? regular season with a hip yeah. issue. Yeah, they think he's out for the regular season, and he should conveniently be ready right around game one of the playoffs. Uh, yeah, and the other one that's uh, because it happened a long time ago, but the other the other money they're trying to find is for Vasilevsky, who they they had him on a three-year bridge at 3.5 million that expired last year the year that he won the Stanley cup and early last season he signed a long-term extension at 9.5 million a six million dollar raise so they had to 
they had to find some way to uh, fit him under the cap. So Julian Brisebois had his work cut out for him this summer, and he's found a fairly inventive way of dealing with the trading for Marion Gabrick, who's, I can't remember when he last played a game, but some time ago he had a contract that, that um, uh, you know, still in four, still has one year left in it, but uh, uh, he's been hurt and unable to perform for quite some time. But that's that's a that's a fairly uh, uh, a fairly sick way of dealing with uh, what was a massive headache for uh, the Tampa GM. Indeed, indeed. So Dom Lashishan of the Athletic, mm. who is uh, again uh, I, I a strong writer over there uses stats in an interesting way. He's working through the NHL and giving his forecast for each team today. He hits on the Edmonton Oilers. And Bruce, it's largely positive news. He he sees the Oilers uh, with a 65% probability of making the playoffs, according to his model. And he sees the team getting 64 points, 64.1 points, in this 56-game uh, season. Uh, winning more games than they lose is how how he's calling it. And I thought, so when I read these, when I read uh, what outs, Peter, people from outside the market have to say about the Oilers, I'm, I mean, we uh, are hyper-focused on the Oilers. I'm hyper-focused on the Oilers. So I'm looking to see, uh, you know, how many clangers they have in their analysis. You right. know, where do they where do they get it wrong, at least according to my opinion of the team? You know, where mm-hmm. are they completely out to lunch? And I have to give Dom credit that, I didn't see clangers in his analysis of the Oilers. He he seemed in, so. Maybe what I'm saying is his view of the team matched up with my own view of the team. But um, you know, like he, he, there was a few astute comments. Like you know, he gives he's saying Koskinen's a pretty decent goaltender, and that's not something that we hear even from some people in the local market. Um, mm. There there tends to be. You know, this is people in the same breath, Bruce, will go on about, you know, how the Oilers missed out maybe on Jacob Markstrom. And uh, Jacob Markstrom is this, you know, would have been a big signing for the Oilers. And then you know, they'll downgrade Koskinen. Well, these are people who, two goalies who had almost the identical save percentage in the regular season last year. So uh, Lysician was saying he thinks Koskinen's actually a little, you know, indicated he's, he's a de- decent goalie. And the real problem on the team is team defense. Mm-hmm. This is a team that's going to score a lot of goals, he says, but is uh, needs to have a greater commitment to team defense if they want to win. And um, I think that's right. I think Dom is correct about that, that uh, the Oilers last year had some real issues on defense. And people are, uh, you know, some of those issues, quite rightly, were pointed out around some of their best players, McDavid and Dreisaitl who had, um, if nothing else, had a stretch of about six weeks in late November and early December, or through December, right. where their defensive game absolutely fell apart. And they were leaking, and they were responsible individually for grade-A scoring chances and goals against uh, their team. Now, they were just, they're, it's not all on them, but no, um, they, you know, some of the defensemen needed to play better. Clefbaum was inconsistent. Darnell Nurse was yep. had his moments where he was inconsistent. Ethan Bear had some moments where he he wasn't quite up to it. Although Ethan Bear was generally up to it. Um, Adam Larson had a bad start to the season and then came on strong. Yep. So there was players. I would say the, the the players who got the most ice time on the Edmonton Oilers were up and down defensively, and 
it would be great this year if they were a lot more consistently up than down. And I have, Bruce, I have high hopes and I think a reasonable expectation that that's going to happen because McDavid and Dreisaitl are finally pegged in as centers on their own line. They weren't going to be confused switching positions around, even on the same shift, who's covering the slot. Oh, I don't know. If you got it, maybe. No, I don't know. Maybe not. When the goal scored against, they're going to be the prime movers defensively as centers uh, on the forward line when they're out on the ice. That's their job. And I think that they're that's going to have a big impact on them in terms of knowing their job and executing their job. Yeah, well, Dreisaitl responded very, very well defensively after he got moved into the middle on uh, New Year's Eve last year. Correct. And he, uh, he, he was much stronger uh, uh, as a defensive player, as a, as a full-time center, as opposed to a rover or whatever it was that, that <laughs> he was. And uh, the other thing, you, you mean, you mentioned guys who slumped in December. Well, Mike Smith's name has to go near the top of that list as well. Of yeah. A guy whose game fell apart for a time. So anytime it seemed like a mistake was made, the darn puck wound up in the net. And so, you know, that, that certainly magnified uh, some of that issue. But uh, the Oilers, for all that they, that they they had that brutal December, they still wound up middle of the pack, 15th in the league in goals against. And they had, um, uh, they were much better than that. I think they were, in the, from January 1st to the end of the season, 10th in goals against and second in goals for. So, I mean, they certainly can produce the uh, the goals and, and the uh, uh, the realignment of the forward lines. I mean, I've mentioned this many times. To me, that was the turning point of the whole season uh, when they when they when they did that split and they got the buy-in from those guys and the uh, the whole team really sort of picked it up and turned it around from that point forward. And hopefully that's the 2020 version of the 2019-20 Oilers that is the dominant one that carries forward into 2021. Dom was also quite excited by Tyson Berry's signing. And uh, mm -hmm. what he says is, quote, the lack of elite zone exit talent is a real issue in Edmonton, where there are too many defenders who lack the skills to move the puck out effectively. It's why I was a big fan of the addition of Tyson Berry on a cheap one-year deal. He'll be the best offensive defenseman McDavid or Dreisaitl have ever played with, unquote. Mm -hmm. So that this is this is what I when I thought, okay, Dom, you really are on top of the orders because you identified, this is what Alan May from the Washington Capitals, who's a, an analyst, also identified with the Oilers in the playoffs, is this team just still was not moving the puck out well from their own zone, and they had too many guys, and listen, I'll name them, Matt Benning, Chris Russell, and Adam Larson, were the three guys in the bottom end who really struggled at times to move the puck. And then Nurse Clefbaum and Bear, also in the playoffs. You know, what I was hoping is that from Clefbaum, Nurse, and Bear from going to being the best puck-moving D-men on the team would be would be uh, slotted down where you, they could actually the Oilers could actually get three puck-moving defensemen who were better. Now that that um, hasn't happened, but they they got one guy in Barry who's you know he's taking essentially Benning's spot on the roster, and he is you know he's going to be so much better than Matt Benning. 
Matt Benning, for all that he offered as a as an NHL hockey player, and he is an NHL hockey player, was at best an average, mediocre, puck moving defenseman uh, for the Oilers. And so having Tyson Berry instead of him is just a, it could be a, quite a dramatic change for the Edmonton Oilers. Adam Larson, when he's healthy, is also not a bad puck moving defenseman. And as the year progresses, if Chris Russell's puck moving and he's going to play the left side obviously now if his puck moving which is better on the left side if that doesn't get better he's going to be out of the lineup and we're going to see a player i think like cuckoo or uh lenstrom as for cleft bomb being gone we have caleb jones slotting in so we're going to see solid puck moving from caleb jones there so i this was a huge issue on the oilers dom identified it other people have identified it and i think they've taken steps to to uh remedy it now, with young Evan Bouchard waiting in the wings as well, and he may well, you know, he may well see a significant amount of action in this upcoming season. And of course, uh, puck movement, passing, uh, and uh, um, transitional play is a big part of his game. So, whether, you know, we're not sure exactly when he's going to be ready, but we do know that the kind of game that he brings will see an improvement in Oilers' outlet passing for. At bare minimum, he's a beautiful passer of the puck. The idea of def- any defenseman, let alone more than one, who's consistently able to deliver the puck onto the tape of uh, of McDavid, Drysaitel, or their line mates, uh, you know, in in a in a good attacking position in the in the neutral zone is uh, music. We you know we want to see that. Bruce, the last little piece of unfinished business right now is Ethan Bear's contract. Mm-hmm. And it's interesting because I was thinking today, obviously I'd like to see Ethan Bear sign. I'd be happy if he could if they could get him on a three-year three-year deal, use Clefbaum's money to, to to hook him up longer. And maybe that's why this is stretching out a little longer than any of us would have hoped. My only other thought is like, you know, I, I it suddenly popped in my head, well, if Bear's not there, Bouchard's gonna get a, he'll he'll be stepping into that role. And Bouchard's ready, and then I thought, oh, geez, he's, he'll if he's gonna if they're gonna ask him to replace Ethan Bear in the lineup, that could be trouble. Like that's like asking Justin Schultz to suddenly move into the top four um, as a rookie in the NHL and, and play those kind of minutes. And we we all remember how that worked out horribly. So, but here's the here's the thing: Evan Bouchard wouldn't be asked to do that. I mean, they have Tyson Berry and Adam Larson. If those two players are healthy. They have veteran players who can play in the top four um, mm-hmm. in Barry and Larson. And Bo- all Bouchard would be asked to do would be the third pairing guy with Chris Russell as his partner and playing some power play minutes. And that, so, so I'm not, I don't think this is yet a situation where the Oilers are looking for leverage, although leverage is a part of every contract negotiation. Evan Bouchard does give them that leverage and that, that, confidence that if Ethan Bear's demands are unreasonable right now, well, maybe they'll say, well, we'll see how it goes for a while here, Ethan. I mean, we, we like you as a player, but there has to be a number that makes sense for both us and you. And I don't know, like, I don't really have a sense of if, if there is a major disagreement between Bear and the Oilers or not. It's hard to tell. Maybe mm-hmm. it was just always a, a, a case of the Oilers waiting for Clefbaum his status to be resolved and then if there's extra money then they could work out something more with Bear and maybe they're just in the process of doing that right now that's what I hope 
Um, so we'll see what happens there. Now, Jason Greger of TSN 1260, he provided this update uh, yesterday, being uh, 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 Sunday the 27th. So, uh, Ethan Bear update. His agent, John Davidson, and Oilers continue to have talks. One, two, and three-year deals have been discussed. Talks have been cordial. They just disagree on money at this time. Bear is skating in Kelowna. To ensure he doesn't miss day one of training camp, then he needs to be in Edmonton at the following times. Either if he flies commercial, he needs to be in the city tonight, meaning last night now, so we'll hear if he's here or not. If he drives and Kelowna is not considered a hot spot and he doesn't go in any places, then he has to be in Edmonton by the 31st. So the clock is ticking, and it's ticking fast in terms of of this turning from a uh, contract negotiation into a technically a holdout. So all that's separating, all that's separating them is money. Mm-hmm. That's it, eh? Yeah, Just that's money. It. That's, that's money. All. But at least they're ta- at least they're cordial. At least yes. they're not. That's 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 something, know, right? They're, at least they're, they're, can... they're talking. They're not yeah, at least... sort of in their own camps, being mad at one another yet. <laughs> <laughs> Bruce, Ethan, I, I, listen, he is a he is a good NHL hockey player, Ethan mm-hmm. Bear, and I hope they sign him. Yep. Evan Bouchard is is ready for the NHL, I believe. He's mm-hmm. he's played a year in the in the pros. Um, he he did very well. He's now had half or a third of a season in Sweden, where he's looked really good. Um, I would be uh, Ethan Bear would be just well served to get as much money as he can in the next few days, mm-hmm. whatever that is, and then sign that contract. That's all I'm saying about that. Because I'm not sure in the long run that Ethan Bear's a better player than Evan Bouchard. I think that's a real open question. And there is this competition that's going to be he- held this year between uh, Bouchard, Bear, and Tyson Berry for, I think, three guys competing for what I think are probably two jobs. Or maybe they keep all three. Maybe it's Adam Larson who's on the who who will be leaving. That's a possibility too. But there is so let's say there's four guys. There's four mm-hmm. guys comp- competing for three jobs next year, and this is a they're all really good hockey players in their own way, I believe. And we'll see how it plays out. Maybe injury is going to solve the question. They're, in the they're end. all puck movers, except for so, Larson. But yeah, oh, oh right. But yeah, if it's four guys competing three. for three, then it's right. like the one. Which might give Larson an edge, right? Because maybe you need that different player in the mix, depending on how much he's going to ask for. So it's just a really interesting situation. Like, I guess as an Oilers fan, I'm just should be happy, Bruce. For once at right defense, for 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 once, in how many years, we have all of this talent at right defense um, coming uh, online already, and Michael Kessel, Kesselring in the pipeline. Uh, Sam Rukov, who can play the right side, who plays the right side in the KHL in the pipeline. Um, the Oilers finally have some real competition uh, for that spot. That's the good news. And let's and I, I'm just hoping Ethan Bear can 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 settle it. And if I, I think he'd be really smart to sign a longer term contract because you know that kind of gives him the leg up in terms of sticking around um, in the NHL. Well, the owners have invested five years of uh, development in Ethan Bear, and he, the players, invested the same five years and, and made the development. And uh, power to him, he turned into, uh, arguably, he was the order's best puck-moving defenseman last year. 
He was. You know, so he was. Yeah. Uh, in terms of the outlet pass and and. Uh, uh, so good with the puck every yeah. time it got on a stick, right? He made the right play almost every time. He was fantastic. I really, I, I really liked the player. Mm-hmm. And he was pretty good on defense too, right? Like not bad. Held his own well, in the for top an four. Work, yeah, he, yeah, yeah. He, he, he held his own and he, he's, uh, you know, he's still improving. I mean, we haven't seen the best that this player has to offer. He made a huge, huge step last year and hopefully another step to come, you know. But, uh, but uh, he's a guy, you want to have him, uh, signed and relatively happy, and you know at least some kind of understanding that if they have to if they have to uh, short him this year that uh, he's in the plans and that next year when a little cap space opens up he'll still be in the plans and he just has to yeah. deliver the goods. So they don't have to short him this year, Bruce. I mean they could go that option, right, the Oilers, mm-hmm. but there is this other option now because of the Clefbaum's contract situation and the money that opens up, so um, they can pay him. Uh, over a three-year, I mean, they could pay him if they want. They could go five years. They could, they could try to get him on a longer-term deal at this point because um, that that possibility is there now. Because next year they don't have the same cap. Like even if Clefbaum comes back next year and right. plays for the Oilers, they they're covered in their cap situation. So, alrighty. Any final thoughts? Any? Guess we'll be watching Holloway hopefully and Broberg hopefully. for sure. Yep. Yep, Brobery's uh, scheduled to play uh, uh, today. They have a uh, Swedes are playing their second game on today, the 28th, that we're recording this. And uh, uh, they uh, the Oilers only have the two players in the tournament, but they have uh, you know both high-profile you know first-round draft picks. So it's uh, it's fun to watch. And then the, yeah, I guess my one final thought is. Uh, relates back to the article I wrote last night that uh, uh, many, many of the players in this tournament are from the same pool that produced the uh, uh, the 2018 Linka Gretzky Cup that was played in our city. And that was a U18 tournament before any of these guys had ever been drafted. And frankly, we hadn't heard of most of them. And But as a U18 tournament, that was uh, the cluster of 2001 birthdays. And now at this 2021, technically, World Junior, uh, the 19-year-old class is 2001 birthday. So it's the exact same pool. And I compared the rosters of the eight Halinka Gretzky teams, uh, which are eight of the 10 teams in the World Junior, and there's 77 players that are common to both tournaments. So we have many dozens of players who are not even visiting Edmonton or Rogers Place for the first time. But... They've been developing as hockey players for the two and a half years in between times, and most of them have been drafted uh, by NHL teams. Uh, that um, uh, it's fun to see their progress and how you know how this uh, how this whole um, international tournament uh, structure uh, involves an entire class. And we, we were lucky in Edmonton to get that Linka Gretzky. Unfortunately, the 2020 version of that event was canceled in August uh, completely. And of course, they were playing NHL playoffs in uh, in our building in August, as it turned out anyway. But uh, uh, that was a, a very enjoyable tournament to attend, and it's fun to see, sort of be reaping the benefits, so to speak, uh, years later. And that we have familiarity with these guys. We saw Philip Broberg in that tournament. We saw Dylan Holloway in that tournament. 
in uh, in 2018. Now they're both, uh, you know, Oilers first round picks. One uh, one final note. I I, I noted when there was this huge positive explosion about Broberg. Mm-hmm. Robert online on on Saturday, I think it was, you know, after when he was playing so well. I just thought back to the draft day when he was taken, and I looked, I looked, I did a Twitter reacts story that day, All Bruce, right. mm-hmm. about how Oilers fans, many Oilers fans, had reacted, mm-hmm. and I was glad to see I I had stuck to my guns, and I said I like I'm not going to comment on this player. I haven't seen him play, so I'm just not going to say. I'm just going to wait, and you know, maybe that's kind of a boring thing to say repeatedly after players are drafted and trades are made. But as someone who's trying to take this a little bit seriously and be a somewhat credible in my analysis, you know, as an amateur hockey fan mm-hmm. slash talent observer, I just, that's where I'm at. I'm just not going to do that anymore. Where I weigh in heavily on a player I haven't seen, but person after person, I, I think who hadn't seen him were, was doing that and saying like, this is the, you know, this is a terrible move by Holland and, there was lots and lots of criticism of Ken Holland that day. People mm-hmm. profoundly disappointed in Holland for not drafting uh, one of the top U.S. forwards, Cole Caulfield or Trevor Zegras or Philip Boldy. And those players are all also turning out very, very well. But it's nice to see that maybe Ken Holland wasn't such a big dum-dum after all and saw something in yeah. this player which is now evident to pretty much everybody in the hockey world. Philip Broberry has a chance to be certainly to merit. Like if you can get a top four D-man out of a eighth overall pick, you've done pretty good. If you can get a first number one D-man, Bruce, or a top pairing D-man out of that pick, you've hit the jackpot. And the owners are somewhere between doing very well and hitting the jackpot, I think, with Philip Broberry pick. So... Yeah, I'm with you on the overreacting part when you haven't seen kids and you're just sort of, if you fall in love with a name or something you've seen or one highlight you've seen of a guy or something and and uh, it becomes that guy or nothing or, or whatever, you know. And I mean, some, some of the conclusions drawn about Ken Holland and his hockey and scouting knowledge seemed a little bit far-fetched given his tremendous track record over a very long period of time, but... But uh, it's a passionate sport, and the fans are passionate too. So more more power to them. I guess it's all about the discussion. But uh, uh, I prefer, uh, as to you, to reserve judgment to some extent. And at this point, you know, I'm pretty happy with Brober's development. And obviously, he's still got a long ways to go. And even the guys that were raving about him on Saturday went took pains to say he's not NHL ready yet. It's going to be a bit like he's a work in progress. And so. Yeah, it would be a pretty boring hockey world too if everyone said was just on, like if everyone was just on draft table. I'm on the fence about. I just want to see this player more. I'm not going to send mm-hmm. it. Like if we all did that, like what I'm doing now, it would be kind of that would be a little oh. bit uh, boring. I, like I, you're right. People are passionate. It's actually some of the people who were were down on the Broberry pick had been watching all the players. Had been mm-hmm. watching. I mean, in oh, the sure. Oilers, you know, there was like Mark Edwards, who's a bright hockey guy. His, his, I think they had him 21st overall that year, Broberry, and thought that was a reach of a pick, right? The, 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 so there was lots of people who were very knowledgeable about these players who saw them a lot, who also weren't that enthusiastic about them. So, so there's that. Um, uh, I, he, and, he, he seems to be, he seems to be warranting 
um, the bet that was made on him that day is what I will say at this point. Like maybe there's going to be five or six or seven players who were taken after him in the draft who turn out to be much better than he in the NHL. Maybe one of those players will be Trevor Zegras, who's also looks like he's certainly warranting the bet that Danaheim, oh. I think it was made on him at ninth overall. Mm-hmm. Cole Caulfield looks looks fine as a prospect right now. So there could be lots of lots of these players, but uh looks like Broberry so far is one of them where the bet seems to be in line with where the player was taken in the draft. Bruce, thanks for talking today. Yeah. Uh, thanks for listening, everyone. Happy New Year. Happy New Year, Cult of Hockey readers and listeners. And in the meantime, and in between times, this has been another edition of the Cult of Hockey podcast.